I'll be back where I was born to be. And oh, sorry. I uh, just finished singing the entire score to Sunset Boulevard, the musical. And you're going to clap for me, you havens. Marvelous. <clears throat> we back. So beautiful. <laughs> yes, we are back with part two of the Gilded Films podcast, focusing on the year 1950. I'm Brett. I'm here with Christian and Zay once again. We're going to get into some other movies um, from that year. Um, we have 12, or sorry, not 12. We have seven more additional films to look at, 12 total. Before we get into that, one thing that I started the last go-round with our 2007 episode is totaling up everything that we've watched um, to kind of get some statistics on how much time we spent actually preparing for this. And so I have individual totals, and I have our complete total Christian, I believe you probably set a Gilded Films record with 2007, watching like 27 or 28 movies. Nobody quite approached it this time, but we came very close. Um, personally, I watched 23 films, about 37 hours and 17 minutes of footage. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Christian, you watched 25 films. This is according to the shared Google Sheet. Zay, you watched 25 films. Separated by a margin of 35 minutes. Christian, you spent 39 hours watching movies. Zay, you spent 39 hours and 35 minutes watching movies for this podcast. Very well done, both of you. Hold we up. appreciate that. <laughs> you know what's even wilder? There were three movies I didn't even put in the sheets. Oh. There you have it. Because okay. I, I was like, because we were like talking about like shortening the length, and I was like, oh, so I won't put the movies in that we're not going to talk about. Interesting. Okay. And I was like, they were just nothing films I didn't want to talk about, so I didn't put them in. <laughs> oh, oops, I, I unsettled the. No, no problem. But really, I appreciate. Now wants me off the podcast. I can. <laughs> <laughs> I've become the Eve. Christian, you still hold the record. <laughs> but I um <clears throat> as I twist my hair, I watched <laughs> I watched all 20 acting nominations. So that's fair. I didn't do anything like that. Bonus points. All right. Very well done, both of you. I really appreciate that. Um total between three of us, um, 73 films. Obviously not 73 different films, but tracking everything we watched. For a total of 115 hours and 52 minutes total. So we watched ain't, a lot. Ain't bad. For ain't bad for 1950. Yeah. <laughs> and so. All right. Did I hear well, a clap? <laughs> oh, I slapped my arm. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I think it was really good for 1950, considering there is no genre films for 1950, and I was struggling. True. I looked up horror films on Letterboxd. There was only like three or four. And I watched one and it was bad. <laughs> and I looked up like, because I love 50 science fiction and there weren't that many like the types that I'm thinking of, like aliens and flying saucers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that too, which I found really weird. But I was going to watch Destination Moon, but I couldn't find it for free. And I was like, I'm not renting this. I don't know how good this is. <laughs> That's fair. Anyway. Yeah, so we're not going to cover all of those movies, obviously, but 
We're going to start out with two movies that Zay picked for everybody to watch. Do you want to go ahead and introduce our first one? Our first one, the English title is A Son of Love. The French title, I don't speak French, but I'm going to try my best, Un Chant d'Amour. Directed by... Gonna fuck up his name, it's fine. Jean Genet? Genet? Jean. Jean Genet. Jean Genet. Jean Genet Ramsey. (laughs) 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 Apologies. Anyway, um, I'm like that whoopee gif right now where she just like lies on the floor. Favorite oh my god. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Back on track. Three, two, one. Um, it is not a narrative film, so it's very hard to um give a synopsis of what happens. It's basically a film that takes place in a prison where there it's all men, and it's a very homoerotic film, no subtext. Very hard, hard text. Um, basically, of a film very dreamlike in um, desire of just two men who want to be together, but they cannot because they are in jail. And I think that's as much as I can summarize about it. It's a short film, only like 30 minutes, something like that. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, but I love this film. I had seen it last year, year before. And when we were doing the films in 1950, I wanted to bring this one because I knew Christian and Brent had not seen this. So I am scrolling through my text and on July 4th at 9.14 p.m. when I saw this, I texted Zay in all capital letters, this is gay, my virgin eyes. They say, did you go blind? And I said, I thought it was implied gay stuff, not full on. What do you know? <laughs> and then I said, 1950, and there's penis involved. <laughs> Multiple. So this is Christian's opinion time. I actually love this. I'm so glad you picked this because I would probably have never seen this otherwise. Like, I have never even heard of this. It is very experimental. There's... I mean, like you said, there's not really a plot, but there's like an outline, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's like men wanting the desire of other men. For 1950, it is very different. Like, you can tell this is a foreign feature. Like, foreign features at this time are like, six? (laughs) Of course we are short. (laughs) Because you see, like, full-on nudity in this, and I was so shocked. We're talking 1950 when like Ozzy and Harriet and Lucy and Desi are in separate beds. Mm-hmm. And here we are watching this movie about just like men wanting men, not like to grab a beer with, but to like <laughs> grab a dick with. <laughs> the film was very controversial. So it wasn't like it was getting away with murder, but it was still made in 1950. So that's enough to be talking yeah, there were actually like legal cases that arose because of uh, folks showing this, um, exhibiting it here in the U.S. It actually went to the Supreme Court, and it was determined as obscene. And that was in 1966, so 16 years later, they were trying to show it, and they're like, uh-uh. That's wild. And they just called it pornography. They like didn't even like try to like talk about it. Of course. 
Yeah, I. Uh, this was pretty amazing um, because with a film that doesn't use dialogue, um, it's kind of avant-garde and experimental in that way. The thing that I just kept going through was like, wow, the power of images in telling you know this story and this interaction. And like you said, there's a lot of passion between two characters who are separated by a wall, um, more so than I've seen in most romantic films where characters are actually getting to be with each other. And so that I was really impressed by that aspect. I just want to say that if any of our listeners want to watch this, it is on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it is silent because I actually had to ask Zay if I was watching the right one, because there is one with more modern music. And I was like, this doesn't sound right. But no, it is silent. That threw me for a loop. But I I mean, is it, it meshes in a wet afternoon? Meshes of the afternoon. Yeah, um, that's silent too. I mean, there's another version where it has sound, but I know it's something about experimental films and silence that they're pretty much hits for me. Like I enjoy that. And this again, with the visual imagery, it's like, that's the sound. That's all you need that and your dirty, dirty minds. <laughs> yeah. I got to thinking about that because I did take an experimental film class in college. I think you were in it for a while, Christian, two weeks, two weeks, <laughs> but this, this film was not even talked about in that class. Um, and it's one that I, I, there are a lot of movies that we watched in that class that I did not like. And I, it's not because I dislike experimental film, but this is one where I really would have appreciated watching and talking about. And I can't use the excuse of the nudity because we literally watched a film by Stan Brackage in which his wife gave birth and it showed it all on screen. So can't use that excuse. But this, like, when I think in terms of like avant garde experimental films, I struggle to think of many that have that I like as much as I liked this one. You know, Meshes of the Afternoon is up there. Maya Darren's great. Um, it was really cool to watch this, especially being made in 1950. I think an interesting point that it is avant-garde. So many female filmmakers, queer filmmakers, in which this film would inspire a lot of the greats, Paul Morrissey and Derek Jarman, as others, um, that they'd have to make films like this because they are not getting hired by the studios to make films for women by women, for queer, queer people by queer people. So... Um, to tell these stories, they'd have to go low budget, trying to tell stories in different ways in order to get their ideas out. Definitely. Um, I was really interested in this cinematography in this because, well, it's amazing. Um, I found the cinematography was done by oh, Jean Cocteau, I believe it's as pronounced. A uh, very famous French director. He actually directed Orpheus, which also came out this year and is very, very good. So, and the only and the only version of Beauty and the Beast that I truly love. There you go. Oh, <laughs> wow. hey <That's> Toby, <laughs> you got a fight. <laughs> I actually didn't know that that he did the cinematography. That's why I'm making my face. That's interesting. Okay, which I can awesome. see that. Because he's not like famous for his cinematography. Because I looked and I was like, did he actually do cinematography? And I couldn't find any credits. I'm like, I didn't look too far, but I couldn't find credits immediately. So, yeah. Hmm. 
which is to say that the person that directed it, he, this is his only film. He was like more known for his like writing. Yeah. I saw that where this is like the only, yeah, it says the only film that he directed. I mean, Hey, made an impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was really interested, interested in the interactions between um, the two central characters, but also the prison guard who comes mm-hmm. into the fold as well. Um, that kind of creates this another layer to it and whatnot. It was really interesting. So, yeah, I'd say definitely go on YouTube, um, check it out. Definitely a great watch. Another one of my favorite films of all time. So I definitely, everyone should see it. Nice. And it only takes like less than half an hour. Show it at family gatherings. <laughs> or sleepovers. Well, no, no, no. We have all about you for sleepovers and for family gatherings. We have a song of love. Just don't get it mixed up. <laughs> and our next film we have for kids' birthday parties. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So the next one I picked um, is the film Outrage, directed and written by Ida. I yeah, Ida. I say Ida. I think it's Ida. Ida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Directed and written by Ida Lupino. Um, it's a narrative film about a woman who has a seemingly normal life that is completely changed one night when she is a victim of sexual assault. Um, and she is completely almost like comatose, like mentally she's just completely wrecked by this happening and none of her family knows what to do about it even though they're like they they don't know how to deal with it and they're just treating her with a way that you would not treat someone in that condition and so she decides to run away and she goes to a town tries to make a new life even though like she can she hears on the radio that her family is looking for her and they tell the circumstances of why she ran away and then she meets this reverend who takes her in, tries to get her life going again. And that leads to a case where she is being blamed for possible murder and the rest of the story. Yeah. So, oh, who wants to go first? Go for it. Okay, so I saw this actually back in um, January. I rewatched it for this. Um, again, another good movie. I don't think I'm as thrilled by it as you two because I saw your ratings. Mine is a three, so I'm about average. I like Lupino's pictures. Pictures. <laughs> Welcome to 1950. <laughs> um, they are very controversial and hard hitting. This one being like the most because we are talking about the subject of sexual abuse. Brett or Zay, one of you wrote here that it is the second film in post Hollywood that talks about the subject mm-hmm. um, after Johnny Belinda. Um, that one being more of a mainstream, this one from this was a B uh, picture. Yeah, this is really a B picture. And again, you can find it on YouTube. But no, it's it's very, I think for me, it was scary, especially mm-hmm. in the beginning, because you're introduced to this girl getting like chocolate cake from this really sketchy sort of um I just, I think nowadays you would say like, um, what is a food truck vendor? Mm-hmm. 
And he's like, why don't you just leave him behind and you and I can go out and then like cut to the next scene where he's closing up for the night night for some reason, not like mid afternoon. And she's coming out of work and you think it's him and you're like freaking out because she's getting followed. And it's like, oh, my God, this is like happening. This is like legitly happening right now. And another thing, too, which I don't know if you stressed on this, but Ida Lupino is a woman director. Mm-hmm. So this is very much, I mean, this, like, that's a whole other topic now for this movie and the subject at hand. I think she was the only studio director at this time. Definitely for RKO. Which she got the deal through RKO because of her ex-boyfriend, Howard Hughes, who helped her get the contract with them. You mean Leonardo? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I'm really glad this was directed by Ida Lupino because okay. that's what gives it, you know, its human nature and like really allows it to the content to come through the way it should. Not that it's perfect, but I'm just thinking of like any of the male directors during this time taking this on, it probably would have been a much worse movie. Now, I would think like if it was not Ida Lupino, it would definitely have been more of like a scare picture, which mm. it's, I'm sure that's how it was marketed. But she adds so much nuance to it that you can, the tension never leaves the film, I don't think. Even mm. after the scene, which that is the perfect, like, ten, like, there are so many horror films today that just can't get that kind of tension. Yeah. But she nailed it. And, but even after that, anytime there's a man on screen, you can feel the tension seeping back into the film. You can feel Mm. that she doesn't trust the man. And like the film is centered heavily on her that maybe we shouldn't trust this man either. Her being, uh, by the way, Mala powers. Yes. Yes. Very good performance from her. No, very true. What you're saying, Zay, because it's like, we're not supposed to trust these men either. We don't know what to do. I mean, that, I mean, you start off with this food vendor guy being all creepy with the chocolate cake situation. Like, dude. Honestly. Especially with films coming at this era, they're all from male directors. So they're all coming from the male perspective. Mm -hmm. So they would never, like... I don't think men would think that... Of course, they'd be like, not all men. But then, (laughs) you know, of course... Ida's also, she doesn't think all men, but after that happens, you're going to think, is this the next one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see it like the very next day, um, there's a man who comments on her dress, and then she's touched on the shoulder by an employee, and it really makes her jump, and then she's very much affected by all these noises in the office. And so bec- I think because of Lupina's direction and the performance from Powers, you know, it really... Um, it really pushes forward that feeling and that tense atmosphere that you mentioned earlier. It's a really good story too about PTSD. Because mm-hmm. yes. normally, normally for movies, I associate PTSD with like a war movie or post-war movies. Mm-hmm. But this, you have like a topic that again, 1950 is very taboo. I mean, you have Johnny Belinda, but if I recall from Johnny Belinda, after that incident, she's a bit affected by it, but there's then there's a child involved. So it's not as hard hitting as this. In this, 
the incident happens. Like Zay said, she's sort of, her mind is comatose. It's not getting out of her head. You can't get something like this out of your head. And so she just goes through these motions of, I have to run away from it all, but forever feels like it's following her. I mean, and like, she, what help is for her to get if they can't understand where she's coming from, you know? I think my only problem is probably the ending. I think the ending is just too clean cut. I agree. I, I think the only problem, because I, she like develops a relationship with the Reverend. And of course that can turn into a romantic relationship. And I guess not, I'll take out the spoiler stuff in the middle there. So it's still there. But at the end, he's just like, go back to your husband. Well, not, they're not husband. They're, they're engaged. Um, and she's like, I guess. And then she gets on the bus and goes. And I'm like, I feel like that wasn't the original ending. I feel like there was something else that she wanted to say there. But I'm not sure what it would have been. It's like that it wraps it up. It's like it almost wraps it up too quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is only a 75-minute film. Because it was a beat picture. Yeah. And again, you can, if any listeners out there, it is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. That's where I watched it. I agree on the ending. Um, <clears throat> there are just certain things in this film that it, it just kind of struck me that they were included. Like the idea of fear and trauma paralysis um, during the attack, like not something that I would expect to be uh, really brought forth and presented in a movie from 1950 and the effects of that. And like you mentioned, Christian with the PTSD and really focusing on how it affects her. Not what I expect from a black and white film from 1950. So I really appreciated it for all that. Um, I had to look and again, just way again, way ahead of her time. She was just ahead of her time and no one appreciated her. Yeah, definitely. I'm reading this fun fact on IMDb right now on the page. And it's interesting. The production code office, because you know, the production code have, every single influence, rejected the script in 1950, January of 1950, objecting to the words sex maniac, sex fiend, rape, and rapist. These were removed from the screenplay, and the production code approved the film on February 8th of that year, allowing the production to commence. Hmm. So, so at least a month worth of editing. True. So some, some stuff went down. It would have been interesting to see, like, oh, those like those four phrases in this though. Mm-hmm. Again, you picked. I think you picked two very good films because mostly because they are very radical for 1950 yeah. in their topics alone. And two that I probably would not have known about had you not picked them. Honestly, um, maybe outrage is because of it handling the topic, but um, yeah, I really appreciate being able to watch these two and know about them because of this. That's why you bring me on here. You did good, kid. <laughs> and a third good one that we have coming later on. So, Yes, because Brett was like, say, you pick such good films. You need to do a third one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. More like Zay, you picked a kind of short one, so we're going to need to pick another one. <laughs> Uh, in all fairness, we did pick the short film and talk more about it than one of the films that was nominated for Best Picture. That's true. That's a good point. 
Okay. But yeah, Outrage. It's a very good film. And I picked it without even seeing it before myself. And I'm glad that I picked it. Awesome. There's also a good, we mentioned this podcast a lot, but you must remember this. There's a good episode on Ida Lupin. Cool. Moving on to the next film, eh? First film I picked, uh, which was, I picked because it received a Best Director nomination that year, is The Asphalt Jungle. This was kind of a big, um, kind of influential film for the heist crime genre. Um, it follows <clears throat> these men who um, go on this heist and really the heist itself almost goes to plan. There's a little bit of a hiccup afterwards, but it's everything that happens afterwards that causes all the issues. You have these dilemmas between everybody involved, both those who actually completed the heist and those who um, helped out in different ways or are connected in some ways, whether that be major figures in society or the common bookie or um, the lover of Sterling Hayden in the film. So it kind of follows that afterwards and how they all kind of featured their own little downfalls after committing this crime. So like I said, it was pretty influential for the time for being that type of genre. It was based on a 1949 novel of the same name. And like I said, John Huston, the director, received a nomination for this, as did Sam Jaff for supporting actor, the cinematography, black and white, and the adapted screenplay. Thoughts. It's um, an okay movie. Yeah, this is my first time seeing it, and I had heard so many things about it. And I, after watching it, I was like, ah, that's another one for the. I guess I don't like it as much as everyone else. You know what the real sell is? This is this movie. It's the Marilyn Monroe poster for the Marilyn Monroe character who appears in a total of like five minutes. Yeah, not even five minutes. Like that. She's really cute in this movie, though. I I like her. And like, that's like the historical appeal to it, but the movie itself is like, it's fine. I always assume that my like heist type movies are going to be Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Eight types, and this is like I don't know. It's fine. I'm not really enthused by it. <laughs> it feels like it goes on a little bit too much, but yeah, I agree. It was a film that I feel like had all the pieces, but none of the pieces like came together to make like a nice little salad. It was kind of just like you picked off the bits you wanted. A salad. A salad. Yeah, this is like this is like a McDonald's salad to me. Like you think you're gonna get a good salad, but it's just <laughs> I don't And know. this I, is our this is our vegan lesson of the day. I have never eaten a salad from McDonald's. <laughs> Yeah, Brett, Brett, your thoughts since you picked this? True. Um, I agree. I do think it went on a little too long. I actually really liked the heist because it was toned down compared to what we see a lot in heist films that are very like over the top and whatnot. This one is like kind of what you would expect. It's a little more toned down, and it had a really strong focus on the details of what's going on in that scene. Granted. I feel like a lot of the beef of the movie is supposed to come and what comes after that. And while there are some interesting dynamics at play between some of the characters, it does get kind of dull and all over the place. 
um, and does go on longer than it probably should. And I feel like I just, I wanted more out of some of the characters, um, really knowing like, why should I care what happens to these people, whether they die or go to prison or whatever it may be. So I will say though, Sam Jaff, um, he plays the guy who is basically the mastermind behind all this, Doc Irwin Riedenschneider. What a name. I did think he was very good in that role. I also really liked Louis Calhern, who plays um, Alonzo Emmerich in the movie. I like Sterling Hayden in this. I kind of did too, because I really liked... Like, on the surface, he's, like, this tough guy, and he is. I mean, that's his job. But he also has this really touching and passionate dream of what he wants to do mm-hmm. after he's finished with all this I didn't expect, which was kind of cool. So, And again, Gene Hagen is in this from Singing in the Rain mm-hmm. as, like, his girlfriend. And I, I, I always forget it's her because she's not doing that voice from Singing in the Rain. She's like, an actress <laughs> has a normal voice. I'm like, wait, what? You're the same girl? <laughs> yeah, I get that. I found it really interesting because the censors did have a few problems with this film, which I didn't really, I don't know, really expect a whole lot. They had a problem with how extended the heist scene was because criminals. And they also had a problem with um, one of the characters who completes suicide in the film. And so, but they originally, they eventually got it passed. So. And then I put my little fun fact there. Which was, oh, yes. Released, ironically, the same year as the Great Brinks bank robbery. Which I always thought was like a movie or just like a phrase, but it's like was an actual robbery. What happened there? I don't even know if I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever heard of no. I have heard of <laughs> Me just put something there. Let's see. Here. <laughs> so it brings armored car which I, where I work now, I actually get to see about like twice a week, was burglarized. And if you know those things, again, they're armored. So it was an 11-man operation. It was very well planned. They wore Halloween masks. I'm not talking about the intro to The Dark Knight, but (laughs) it only took 30 minutes, and they stole $2.7 million. Wow. Yeah. Quite the haul. Okay. And... uh, Sort of like, now that I'm reading it, sort of like the Asphalt Jungle, because there were perpetrators caught, there was a lot of questioning with people, there was, I guess, failed assassination attempts, what do you know? It's got it all. Yeah, so. Robbery. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... To wrap up my thought, it, it was it was good. I liked it. Um, it's not something I'm probably going to watch again. I don't think I wouldn't have nominated um, John Houston for Best Director. I think there is some good work here. Um, but there is one really good shot that I did enjoy quite a bit. And it's where um, Reed and Schneider, whatever his name was, he's like watching this young woman dancing in this little diner. And she kind of comes out of the frame and it leads to this window where you see a cop looking in. Basically, it's when you know he's screwed, but it's a really cool shot the way they frame it. But What did I tell you about that woman? Didn't I say there was like a fun fact about that? 
You did. What was it? <laughs> I <forget>. it. <laughs> I'm gonna be so uh, mad at myself when you tell me what it was. Wow. I I don't even know. There's like a fun <laughs> fact about that woman in that scene. Listeners, if you can tweet at us what that fun fact is. Find it. You'll get a shout out in the next episode. Yes, I I endorse that. Let's go with that. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Now I feel bad for even bringing it up. <laughs> no, I do remember you mentioning that. I just can't think of what the significance was. I'm sure you'll find it when I'm talking about the other movie. Interesting. Yeah, anything else on the asphalt jungle before we move on to Christian's have, first movie? I have one fun fact. I brought the fun fact this time. Nice. Um, the original actress uh, that was in Marilyn Monroe's uh, character spot was actually Cher's mom. And she got the call that uh, some blonde actress she's never heard of had taken her spot. And that was where her acting career kind of ended. Interesting. Huh. I learned that in the Cher's Mom Mother Day special or whatever. It's a cute documentary. Nice. That's it. <laughs> so we're saying that Cher's mom killed Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. 14 years later, she's like, ah, oh, that bitch again. <laughs> Lord, man, I wish I could find that <laughs> fact. I'm mad now. Okay, we can move on. I might have found it. Go. <laughs> Helen or Helene Stanley. She was an actress and dancer who appeared in a handful of programmers back in the Golden Age and provided her body, literally, for Disney's Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and 101 Dalmatians. That's it. <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> ah, shit. Yeah, now I'm disappointed because I thought it was going to be something else, but nope, that was the <laughs> fact. Well, All right, go on, Harvey. There's Sorry, our Disney. There's our Disney history of the podcast. I picked Harvey. Um, Harvey is the spiritual grandfather to Donnie Darko. <laughs> Am I wrong? You're not wrong, but what a way, weird way to just introduce the film. <laughs> okay, so we have Elwood P. Dowd played by James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, whatever you want to go with. And he's like, he sees a six foot, three and a half inch tall rabbit named Harvey. He's the only one who sees it. Everybody around him is like, this man is crazy. This man's a drunk. But he goes around town literally saying like, my friend Harvey looks upwards. And is like, he's there. He's a rabbit. The whole town doesn't believe him. His sister played by Josephine Hull, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, doesn't believe him. This is a comedy, by the way. It's not like a horror movie. <laughs> this is a comedy. I, I hope I'm describing it right. <laughs> but she, like, admits him to a mental institution because, obviously, but hijinks ensue because she's, like, the one mistaken for the mental patient. 
and like Elwood is seen as the sane one, but then slowly, like in Miracle on 34th Street, where they're like, Santa Claus is real, everybody's like, maybe this rabbit is real, maybe he's not as crazy as he seems. And it's like, yeah, okay, one too many liquor, but no, it is a very delightful film, and I'll leave it at that. Because it's it's a movie much like Born Yesterday or Father of the Bride. It's very easy to watch. It's cute. Jimmy Stewart thought this was his best performance. Interesting. Um, but no, if you're in the mood for a movie about a man who thinks he sees a rabbit and the people around him who are like, maybe he does, Harvey. It is a very cute movie. On the DVD I got from the library, he introduces it. It's like from it's like when the VHS release was though, because he was dead by the time DVDs were out. <laughs> and he was like, "It's so nice that all the young people can sit with their families and watch this anytime they want." He's like, "My favorite movie ever was Harvey." He did say that. He said it was his favorite movies done. I hope that you enjoy this viewing of me and the rabbit. <laughs> Fuck Philadelphia story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful life. You thought it was. <laughs> Um, but um, I had seen this movie once before and I didn't think much of it but this time around it connected with me more I think I, it's just really fun it's a fun movie all the performances are great everyone's just like ha- you can tell they're just kind of having fun with it because they're just like oh it's an imaginary, imaginary rabbit movie I'm getting a paycheck but um, yeah I think it has like a weirdly like it's not nuanced or anything but like an interesting idea about like mental health and like how it shapes people into who they are. I, yeah, I, I just thought it was really, like you guys said, really charming. Um, just a really nice movie to watch. Um, I love Jimmy Stewart as an actor and I wouldn't say this is his best performance. It is kind of, I don't, he never like in a lot of his really great performances he he hits like a mode where he starts shouting and really has this big bombastic Moloch scene and we never really have that here he's pretty calm throughout the whole movie which is kind of nice nice change of pace I thought the one thing that really bugged me though is Harvey is six foot three and a half inches tall how tall is Jimmy Stewart like six two six three and he keeps looking up at this damn rabbit. And I'm like, Jimmy, you still look tall. You still look really tall. It's not like other people are tall with you there. But um, he did say that he thought the rabbit should be like six foot eight. So give him credit there. But again, that's not a huge issue I have. It was just a funny thing that I noticed. But the character that he plays, Elwood, is just so sweet. Everybody loves him. And you get the feeling that people have this sense that he was this guy who had all this great potential. Um, somebody has a line that he could all these great things and all he did was get a big rabbit. And so you have those people like that, but then you also have these people who have these really nice interactions with him mm-hmm. and act as if Harvey is right there with him. And those scenes are really kind of nice to watch. Honestly. I do like, like I said, the um, idea of, believing you don't have to believe in something that's not there because like that doctor at the end starts believing that harvey is there Mm. and that's just nice and even his sister again josephine hall she is i mean she's 
I loved her in this, and she won an Oscar for this. She thanked Harvey at the Oscars, which is nice. Bless her. Um, honestly. And she, I mean, she obviously says that, you know, there's something wrong with Elwood. But as the time goes on, she's like, you know, maybe my brother's not half crazy as we all thought he was. Yeah. It's, it's it's the power of believing in this movie. And he has that one really nice scene, Jimmy Stewart, in like the back alley where he's just like talking. And that's just like, oh, there's his like one heartbreaking moment. Mm-hmm. One I heartbreaking moment per Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart movie. I like I like all the characters. Like, obviously, you got Jimmy Stewart and Joe Sweet Hole. But I also particularly liked the niece who was just like chasing dick the whole movie trying to get out of the family <laughs> like she didn't care who she was going to marry she just wanted to get away from the family fair i mean can't we're say not blame her. Have, we're <laughs> not going to have this much language in the next podcast <laughs> yeah i love all the characters as well jimmy stewart has this really great quote i'm going to read it in full because i love it so much Read an accent. Do the accent. I don't know if I could do it without like having that bombastic feel. Years ago, my mother used to say, to, "I can't do it." I can't do it. <laughs> Years ago, my mother used to say to me, "She'd say, in this world, Elwood, you must be." She always called me Elwood. In this world, Elwood, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years, I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You might quote me. Beautiful. Beautiful line of dialogue. He delivers there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, a lot of moments like that in the movie. Mm -hmm. Christian, you brought up an interesting point to me that we said we would discuss, and it was about um, Elwood being a drinker in the movie and having a problem with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, go. I don't know. Um, I read somewhere that it's semi-implied that he might be an alcoholic or a former alcoholic because we never do see him drink on screen. That may be just because of the production code at the time. But it's, I don't know. I like to think that maybe, yes, he was a very hard drinker for some reason. Maybe he was in the war. And because of that, the war. (laughs) It's always a war. And because of that, he saw Harvey as maybe this sort of coping mechanism as somebody who could only understand his inner demons and somebody who helped him like look at the bright side of life. Because I mean, there's, I can't really talk about the ending because I want people to see this. It's a nice little film, but there's, there's a moment where he thinks that he can get rid of Harvey, but even Harvey quote unquote can't get rid of him. And it's not like a scary thing or anything. It's like, it's more of like a wow. Again, maybe he is right that there is a rabbit following him and his it's his best friend. But I don't know. I think that he might for me, he might have been a former drunk. Yeah. For you, you're like, no, Christian, you're wrong. I didn't say that. The question was, do you think he sees Harvey because of his drinking? And for me, it was like I think like you said, like Harvey is this reflection of the good things. And also I think Elwood is a, is a lonely guy. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you notice, well, he, for one, he has this big rabbit that's always with him, but anytime he meets somebody in the movie, 
it does not take very long for him to invite them out for drinks or something. Like he's always wanting to be around these people and go do something with them, hang out with them. Yeah. And it's like Harvey is the only one who's constantly there for him. Exactly. And so I feel like it's like very alike into when a child has an imaginary friend, but just yeah. given to an adult. Yeah. When a child is lonely or a child is going through like a stressful thing in their life and they don't know how to process it, they just make up an imaginary friend and project all of their feelings and ideas to the imaginary friend. So I feel like going through this war, he didn't know how to deal with his PTSD as most people would not. So of course he goes to alcoholism, but also makes an imaginary friend for himself. Yeah. Yeah, I really like, I think he mentioned at one point that Harvey, like he's just a normal guy, but Harvey is extraordinary. And so it's also just like, it's something extraordinary that kind of fits into his, what is essentially a mundane life for him. And so. I mean, he says the rabbit can stop time. So. Yeah, there you go. And um, Harvey would then go on to make Donnie Darko. <laughs> <laughs> After Jimmy Stewart died, Harvey didn't know how to cope. Oh. <laughs> um, but one, before we move on, I just one more time to Josephine Hall, because even Jimmy Stewart said that like she had the second most important role in this, because mm-hmm. she also had to believe the rabbit was there. Mm-hmm. And like she's so tiny and little, bless her. I love her. And for people that don't know, she was also in the film Arsenic and Old Lace as one of the ants. It's a good movie. Love it. Yeah, she did get the win. Um, James Stewart did receive the acting nom. Those are the only two nominations it had. Um, It did make it onto AFI's top 100 last number 35 and also number seven on their top 10 fantasy films. When was their, like, they did all these lists? Because whenever we do these, they're just, like, kind of weird ones. Yeah, not that Harvey's not like a fun, funny movie, but number thirty-five seems high for it because it's not a knee slapper. Yeah, I agree. I Mental think they... illness. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he's, he's a rabbit. <laughs> oh, you said that with a slight country accent, which is <laughs> Mom, that possum done. God damn it. That's a good question, though. I think they did like one every year between like '98 and 2007 when they finally did their updated lists. Yes, they did. So their last one was in 2008 because I watched it. Oh boy! Yeah, very nice. This was also revived on Broadway a few years ago with Jim Parsons. So. Oh yeah, I remember that. Can only imagine how annoying that would have been. Zinga Harvey. <laughs> Harvey. 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 Oh my god. <laughs> Moving on to the lesbians. To the lesbians. To Orange is the New Black, the demo tape. Yes. We um, have the grandfather of Donnie Darko, and now we have the grandmother of Orange is the New Black. The film in question is caged directed by john cromwell um the film basically a woman is uh with her newlywed husband when he steals money from a gas station she gets caught with him 
and she's also framed as an accomplice. She ends up at a women's prison where the um, conditions are terrible and the women are horribly to each other, but mostly... Um, uh, I forgot her name, but played by Hope Emerson, who is the matron, who is absolutely cruel to the women. And... I wouldn't call them hijinks, but something ensues. <laughs> yeah. This was another really good pick. Um, Eleanor Parker in the lead role has that character arc that seems familiar nowadays, but um, where she starts out this really like nice and naive 19-year-old woman, um, and we kind of see her transformation as she goes through this prison life. So kind of like, I don't know, first three seasons Piper on Orange and the New Black in some ways. But yeah. I watched this um, a few years ago because Zay actually told me about it. And I was like, oh, I'll watch it. Got to 1950, get to watch it again. Again, I really like it. I seem to like all these movies except for Solomon's Binds. Um, but no, this is definitely a prototype for Orange is the New Black, if not better. And this is just one movie. And I'm going to find her name. Evelyn Harper is the matron of this. Yes. Again, Hope Emerson. My God, this woman is evil. Mm-hmm. Like, this is no Disney villain type evil. This is like up there with Hitler evil. That scene with the kitten? Oh, oh my God. And then, like, immediately, then there's, like, this scene where she's, like, shaving her head off. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. like, she shouldn't be doing this, but she's, like, fuck it. I can do whatever the fuck I please, y'all. That was painful to watch. Yeah. And she's, like, so good in this, though. I think mm-hmm. I will see where she lands in my nominations. But she, like, she, for me, makes this movie all the more delightful. That's true. I mean, she's evil, but is she delight? She delighted <laughs> me. I mean, she's a good villain. She really is. Though she also points to a bit of like a predatory lesbian trope that would definitely go on to influence other women's prison films and TV shows and all that. And such as well, like okay, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but like when you I can't like I can see the image in my head of a very butch woman. Just be like, hey, like looking at the newcomer, just like, hey, you're going to be my girlfriend later. Like that sort of thing. I can't think of a specific, like, I'm sure Orange and New Black is having, but I'm tired of talking about Orange and New Black because there's other things. Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. Um, but yeah, but um, I, re- I was reading a couple things. They were like talking about how like, but then like later in the film, she was like, a little more proper and talking about a boyfriend she had. So I feel like the, the code was like getting on to like, mm, well, too gay y'all in this film with no men. Uh, let's just say she has a boyfriend. Let's pretty her up a little. So I think someone was on to something with that. Yeah. I, in some ways, I don't know how this got by the censors. Um, just some of the content that you see here. For one, they had the problem with the suicide in Asphalt Jungle, but here we see a woman, I'm not going to say who, obviously, but a woman hanging from the shoulders down, mm-hmm. um, 
hang yourself. It, it's really an intense image. Um, I had another one I thought of. Oh, kind of obviously not that intense or anything like that, but there's a scene where this woman is talking about like why she's in there and she says sex and love and marriage all mixed up. I wasn't sure how common it was for them to say something like that using the word sex because we talked about how that was cut out of so many films. But they especially say sex and Harvey. What's that? They say sex and Harvey. Yeah, who says it in Harvey? Um Josephine Hole. Okay. I wondered. Because that was the other thing, is like, would they be okay with a woman saying it at this mm -hmm. time? Censors especially. And so and talking about her experiences with it in some way. And so I don't know. I, I bet the censors had a lot of fun with this movie. Especially because it wasn't a secret, I don't think. I mean, Betty Davis was quote. Yeah. She was they wanted her and Joan Crawford to be in this film. And then Betty Davis turned it down saying it's quote a she didn't want any part of a quote unquote dyke movie. Yeah. I would love to see Joan Crawford in this though. Honestly. He'd be like, Christina, bring me the kitten. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Well, Brett doesn't understand that reference. Brett. I can play fire. You're talking about the kitten in the movie, honestly. The Christina reference. Well, now we know what we're picking for 1980. <laughs> there you go. All right. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, I liked um, some of the dialogue here as well. Again, very um, dark film, but also has these moments. There's a line early on in the movie where this inmate is walking in and she says, who is this Pearl Harbor anyway? Is she an inmate? And stuff like that that was like thrown in the beginning. I was like, okay, did not expect that. That was pretty funny. Our listeners course, probably our listeners probably listen in and be like, damn, Brett sure writes a lot of quotes down when he watches these movies. I do. Like I said, I love good dialogue, and so that's what I do. Say I do I think, too, but I'm not smart enough to write it down. <laughs> and me, I just memorize it and phrase it wrong. There you go. But yeah, I mostly picked this movie because of Eleanor Parker being the only like acting nominee and the best actress category we didn't have so it was like interesting to throw her into the reign of our discussion and spoiler alert for my nominations i don't put her in my nominations for the top five actresses of this year but i still think her performance is quite good yeah she would be my number six honestly her transformation though is like really like like you said it's it's shocking because again good it literally good girl gone bad Mm -hmm. So she don't have a choice because she got to live, you know? Yeah. The the line by the warden at the end of the movie, I'm not going to say what it is because people need to go watch it, but that line is like, oh, it kind of gave me chills when she said yeah. she's talking. I was, I was going to say, I was wondering if one of you was going to mention that. Mm -hmm. The warden played by wonderful Agnes Moorhead, by the way. Yes, she's great too. No, but I wanted to mention Betty Gard. Um, yes. I really liked her in this as well. She's, oh, she has a really stunning scene or a few stunning scenes in this as well. And so she deserves mention too. Another good like ensemble. Yes. I oh, agree. what? I didn't even know, but Jane Darwell is in this. 
Jane. Okay, I guess I'm alone on Jane. <laughs> Jane Darwell being Ma Jode from Grapes of Wrath, and also the Pigeon Lady from. Oh Mary yes. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes, it says Jane Darwell, solitary confinement matron. I didn't notice that. One other scene that I really that really hit me, um, obviously the kitten scene, the head shaving scene, and then the scene between the lead character and her mother when her mother visits the prison. Oh yeah, that is heartbreaking as hell. Um, very powerful. So again, it could have easily just been another shock picture, but they. Brought a lot of human elements to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if we mentioned the nominations yet, but Eleanor Parker did get nominated for Best Actress, Hope Emerson for Supporting Actress, and it did get nominated for Best Story and Screenplay as well. So it is a nice little Oscar night as well. Well, it did have a nice Oscar. It didn't win anything. Well, true. Had nice nominations. Morning, right? <laughs> Had a good nominations morning. Can I yeah. introduce the next film? Like introduce in the sense I want to set this up for you to then introduce the stuff. <laughs> I'm a little scared, <laughs> but yes, you can. Okay. No, I just want to say for our next film, we will be traveling across the seas, but back in time, but then to 1950. <laughs> because also eligibility is weird take it away i am shocked that this is the first time we've run into this problem Honestly. like just with the history of the oscars anyway the next film is a film that actually made its premiere in 1949 um but not in the u.s and did not have academy eligibility until 1950 and so that's why we're talking about it here but it is a um, very heavily regarded film called The Third Man. So this is my second choice. Um, it follows the main character played by Joseph Cotton. I got to think of his name. Holly Martins. Um, he is traveling to Vienna to reconnect with his old friend, Harry Lyme. And he gets there and finds out that Harry Lyme was actually killed in an accident just the previous day he literally goes to his funeral it's one of the first things he does and so it appears to be an accident in which he was killed in the middle of the road by an oncoming driver but holly martins is a crime writer so naturally he thinks there's a little more to this that they're not saying and so it's all about him trying to find out what went on the title comes about because there's conflicting stories about what happened some people say that two men helped harry after he was killed um, get him off the road, and some people say it was three, so it's like, who is the third man? Um, it's directed by Carol Reed, who we talked about won an Oscar for Oliver um, 18 years later. Um, but it did win the Oscar for Cinematography Black and White, and Reed did get a director nomination as well as film editing. But this is a really highly regarded film. Um, it was the BFI's Greatest British film of all time in 1999, and Time Out's number two British film, 2017. And so, I don't know what did what did you all think? I guess before I go more into it, this was my first time watching it, and it was one of those like, oh, this is one of those regarded as the greatest time all the time. And I was like, what if I watch this and I don't like it? Everyone's gonna get mad at me. But no, I really love this film. I love the pacing. I loved the story. 
the cinematography, amazing. And the score kind of took me out of it. At the same time, it felt right. Yeah. It was it was really weird to me, but I liked it. So overall, did, yeah, it, it lives up to its expectations. Uh, so for me, this is, I've seen this multiple times. And I think I wrote in my last review that I really didn't focus on it that much for whatever reason. And this time, which I just watched it last week, I focused very intently on it. Very much loved it this time around, especially, I think, uh, Harry Lime. I don't know if it's a spoiler. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about it. Let's just. So Harry Let's... Lime, I mean, he isn't really dead and he's played by Orson Welles. And honestly, it's my favorite aspect of this movie is Orson Welles. He doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, but when he does, it's like the sassiest motherfucking dialogue in the world. <laughs> And yeah, like all about the world. <laughs> honestly, though, I mean, he comes and he like his intro shot is iconic, honestly, in film history. And then his like character introduction in terms of when he meets up with Jason Cotton on the Ferris wheel. That's a Ferris wheel, right? Yes. Uh, and another iconic moment. And then they come out. And he gets his famous cuckoo clock speech, which I won't quote because it just it's one of those that you got to watch. Um, but no, this is a good mystery film too, mm-hmm. because it dives much more into who was that third man, which I mean, just watch the movie to figure that out. So who is that third man? Who was really the real Harry Lime? Because mm-hmm. there's much more to Harry than just this average guy living in Vienna during its occupation by different uh, countries, like. He's a shady character. <laughs> like super duper shady. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, it's good. And also, I for the longest time thought that this was made by Orson Welles only okay. because of the Joseph Cotton and like Citizen Kane kind of feel to it, I guess. Yeah, it has then, a similar style. Yeah, but then it's just like, no, Orson Welles is like just he's just an actor they got for this. I just always knew he was attached to it. So I just assumed he was like, he was directing it because I, for the longest time, this was on Netflix for years. I don't know. As long as I've known it, it's been on Netflix for some reason. I watched on Netflix a week Same. ago. So it's still on Netflix. Um, like, no. Oh, that explains it. Netflix, like classic movies. Um, oh, we don't have to pay for it. Y'all can keep it. But yeah, I've always seen him attached to it. So before I even knew like all about Orson Welles, I knew he directed. So I just thought he directed this. Yeah, we're three for three in that regard. For many years, I thought he directed this as well. So the first time I watched it, I wasn't really aware of who Carol Reed was. I'm like, who's this Carol Reed guy? And I was like, wow, there's some great direction in this movie. Nice job. The director of Oliver. (laughs) Oliver came shortly after. Good good cinematography. Uh, Wonderful cinematography. To quote Aretha. (laughs) (laughs) But no, the, the, it is good. You got the Dutch angles. It's like Dutch angles. How to do a Dutch angle properly 101. Yeah. And the way they use, um, like I said, it takes place in Vienna. The way they use the city, almost like its own character, and build the cinematography around that is pretty wonderful. Uh, and the scenes, like in the sewers or whatever, like the underground, like yeah. those were my favorite scenes because I just like the way they were shot. Yeah. 
It's also placed distinctly after World War II because you see a lot of the rebel and whatnot as well mm-hmm. as a result of that. And so, so this this one actually cinematography black and white, and much like my opinion on King Solomon's Mines winning for cinematography color, I mean I think these two cinematography wins are pretty perfect for their respected time. This being, of course, like the higher up, obviously. But yeah, as far as bl- black and white cinematography goes, I thought this was like up there with like the Ingram. Uh, oh fuck! I I said his name wrong already. Ingmar. Ingmar Bergman. I, you were gonna say Ingrid? Ingrid? No, I was saying Ingmar, but then Ingrid like shoot right in through my mouth, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> Yeah, but like up there with like that kind of black and white cinematography, I was really I loved it a lot. Yeah. And Zay, you mentioned the score. I felt the exact same way. Like at times, I was like, "Does this work? Like, does this fit?" Mm-hmm. I don't care. It's brilliant, and it for some reason it does work. But it was very popular. Um, it actually topped international music charts in 1950. The theme, the Third Man theme, and was number three on the year end Billboard chart, which is really weird. Could but, you imagine that happening today? Oh, there's there's no way. <laughs> Just like dancing at the club so that what is it the the zither? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm hoping that Brett adds a little sound bite of it so that they know that I am dancing right now <laughs> to the sound of the third man's zither. Do that. So, I also want to point out to the music of the zither. I posted on our little fun facts that this is one of Roger Ebert's 10 favorite movies. Um, he writes that this movie is on the altar of my love for the cinema, how he first saw it, what he feels of it. And it just occurred to me that on his last version of At the Movies, the soundtrack, the zither intro to The Third Man was the intro for the final At the Movies that he ever did. Ooh. Yeah, and it just like I like right now it just occurred to me that I have heard it more than just this movie. Yeah, I have too. I don't know where it maybe it was maybe I saw that episode somewhere. I don't know, but they probably sampled it in rap tracks in the nineties. This is me trying to figure out a rap song I could do from the nineties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cinematography we keep mentioning. I think the one of the big shots that's super iconic, Zane mentioned the scenes in the tunnels. There's that scene where Harry Lime or Smalls is in the middle of the tunnels and the light flashes on him and he's, you kind of see a silhouette. It's kind of similar to the shot of uh, Brad Pitt in Assassination of Jesse James or the Coward Robert Ford, but it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful shot. And there are a lot of those in that movie. Who did our cinematography here? Robert Krasker is our cinematographer. Yeah. The name doesn't immediately strike me, but he's obviously very good, or was. He's still alive. Is he? No. Nice. What? How can he still be alive? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I don't know. But one aspect that we haven't mentioned yet that I think is also pretty great is, I'm not sure if this is how you say her name, Alita Valley. Um, she just goes by Valley for this movie. I was going to say, most of the posters just say Vali. I thought she was wonderful in this movie. Um, really one of my favorite performances from that year as well. 
and as well as Orson Welles too. I mean, he comes in and he just completely steals the show, but she really, um, is really fun to watch, but also has a lot of that heartbreak that you see throughout the film. She was Harry Lyme's is Harry Lyme's girlfriend. Um, and of course she, she does think that he's dead for most of the movie. And so you kind of see that shift between her and Joseph Cotton, who actually, she calls, um, Holly Martin's Harry a few times in the film. So you kind of see her struggle in dealing with that. I thought she was brilliant. So yeah, definitely. I think one of the better film noirs, um, especially if you're thinking about that style, but I actually I never it. knew. I actually never knew until tonight that it slipped into public domain. Yeah. Cause there is a Blu-ray release of it and there was a criterion and um, KB, as you all know, one of our other co-hosts, told me when I was watching this, he wishes he could find the Criterion without having to spend the money on like a house payment. Because mm. it is very much out of print. And I mean, yeah. you got you lucky. Yeah, I was kind of upset because I actually rented the Blu-ray from the library just because I wanted to see it on Blu-ray and it didn't work. So it's on Netflix. Yeah, so I went to Netflix. So yeah. Anything it's else like, on? Go for it. No, I was just like, it's the recurring theme. It's always on Netflix. But actually for a movie that 1950 on Netflix, unheard of. They are getting well, that, better at their classic section, actually. So I think enough people complain. They're like, all right, we'll get 10. <laughs> <laughs> that should make them happy. <laughs> and when that, they got the Orson Welles, they got a couple more Orson Welles movies on there when they got the other side of the wind. Interesting. All right. Anything else on the third man? Everybody out there being like, Christian hasn't spoken about his other movies lately. <laughs> Would you like to take the next one away? Thank you. <laughs> all 20 of our listeners, <clears throat> which is a good amount. We love you all. Tina, Biff, <laughs> Short Round. Short Round. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so <clears throat> the final film is In a Lonely Place, directed by Nicholas Ray, who also did Johnny Guitar, and I want to say something else, but Johnny Rebel Guitar is more important. Rebel Without a Cause. Okay, thank you. And it stars Humphrey Bogart as Dixon Steele, or Dix. <laughs> I'm going to let Zay laugh. He is, this is another like Hollywood story. He is a screenwriter. He's more of a curmudgeon -y screenwriter than uh, Joe Gillis. <gasps> That's his name from Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> An hour then, then Joe Gillis, um, he also has this thing called an anger issue. So he goes home one night with this hat check girl from the club who's played by Martha Stewart. <laughs> Not that Martha Stewart, but a Martha Stewart. <laughs> and the next day, she winds up missing. He obviously, because as he is the last person to have seen her, as suspect number one. His neighbor in the same uh, complex is sort of a witness because she did see him go home with her. She's played by Gloria Graham, who would later, two years later, go on to win her own Oscar. And it's sort of, is he innocent? Is he guilty? And then it so happens that Gloria and Humphrey fall in love. 
And it's sort of a weird relationship because again, he's very temperamental and slowly she's like, I've made a huge mistake. Maybe this guy isn't as innocent as he seemed because she assumes that he is innocent because why not? You know? Um, but yeah, it's a great film. It's film noir. Uh, I saw it a few years ago and I was just like really, really enthralled by it. And then like, the second I watched it, it was announced it was going to be on Criterion, and I was as giddy as a schoolgirl about that, and that's how I saw it. And it's really, to me, it's a very, very underrated, like, underseen film that if you're talking about film noir from the 50s, definitely take it a chance on it. Yeah, I really love this movie. I, I had never seen it before. Um, I love Nicholas Ray though because I love Johnny Guitar and Rebel Without a Cause. Both films I consider two of my favorites. But I'd never seen this one. I had heard it in passing, I think, but I never knew what it was about. And I just really loved everywhere it took me. It's nice to see Humphrey as like a villain for once. True. Like yeah. you get to see like he he has the range, darling. Yeah, I think. I don't know how often he did that between this and like the roaring twenties from 1939, but I really appreciated that too. I, I don't know how this film didn't get nominated for any Oscars. I think that's a crime. And I agree very underrated and underseen because I think it's simply brilliant. Hmm. And didn't, aren't, didn't you really like Gloria Graham in this? I loved Gloria Graham in this. Um, I felt that like her performance is not like the most like baby performance from that year. Um, but it is, there's just so much that she does with her face and in these scenes and all these struggles that, you know, she has this lover that maybe killed this person and she doesn't think so, but she's starting to have some doubts and you can really see that conveyed through just her facial emotions, the way that changes as the film kind of goes on, you kind of get to witness her, undergoing this distress so mm -hmm. i thought i thought she was brilliant um honestly such a loaded category and best actress that year i really wish that she could have been in that lineup honestly mm -hmm. i like this too because it feels very very simplistic and that we don't really go out a whole lot from their bungalow apartments because they they literally live in a bungalow with a courtyard and they're across from each other and it's like you get to see this domestic issue happening just within like this itty bitty little section of Hollywood of Los Angeles. And yeah, I just like really love that I get to see Humphrey Bogart just be pissed off at everything. And there's that great scene too where he's describing a murder with his friends in present company. And it's creepy because his like friend is grabbing onto his wife or whatever. And it's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. And then you start like not trusting Bogart at that moment. I think it's what noir does best is when it's just a character study. Yeah. And it goes very deep and makes a great character out of him. Yeah. I don't know. I, again, I watched all but one of the best actor nominees from this year. Um, I didn't get to whoever was in The Magnificent Yankee. Louis Calhoun. Louis Calhoun. I talked about him earlier. Um, but I really, really think Humphrey Bogart should have been in that lineup because he is scary here. You have the scene that you mentioned. You have the scene where he 
um, beats up another driver because they get in that wreck. And that's really one of those moments where Gloria's like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I'm hitting it deep here. And, yeah, to be frightening like that and to really... We're not going to reveal whether he committed the murder or not, but it really made me question, like, I, I, he, I think he might have done this. No. And so it leaves us in the dark just enough. And so great work from Bogart. Yeah. Again, really underappreciated movie. I also really like how it's kind of similar to Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. With obviously the focus on a screenwriter and like kind of the uh, downfalls of celebrity status and what that entails and whatnot. I feel like it was a real transition year for like newcomers and like trying to focus more less on actors and more of like the people making the films. I feel like that's what I'm getting from like definitely those three examples. Yeah. If they're all coming out the same year. Definitely. Um, Gloria Graham, she won, correct me if I'm wrong, for The Bad and the Beautiful. I think that's you're the right. movie that yeah, won. You're right. um, most people, I would imagine, would probably know her best as Violet in It's a Wonderful Life. And so, Oh, yeah. yeah. So, really I enjoyed recently, her. I recently know her from Oklahoma and the fact that she could not sing, so they had to dub her. Ooh. <laughs> she was also in a very excellent Joan Crawford vehicle, Sudden Fear. Oh. <gasps> that will be for our 52 episode. <laughs> All right. Anything else on In a Lonely Place? That's all I got. Go see it, obviously. It should still be in the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, way to phrase that. <laughs> I hear we have some honorable mentions. Yeah, I'll run through these. Um, dishonorable ones. Definitely a couple dishonorable. We had Cinderella from that year, um, which I personally don't think has aged very well. Oh. Which Christian originally wanted us to watch, and I did watch before he changed it to Harvey. Hey, I got you to watch it. And yeah, it was. It didn't bring back a lot of memory. I I didn't like it as a kid, and I Look, think it's just okay. It's important though, and I know Zay will be like, "Who cares?" But <laughs> if it wasn't for Cinderella, there would be like no Disney movies after that because it was the one shot post war to make a profit. Because the uh, packaged films, you know, they're like, okay. But it was his most successful movie since Bambi. And Bambi came out in, like, the early 40s before the war. The war fucked up Disney. Cinderella saved Disney. It's okay. It's mostly about mice. I mean, I, that's Cinderella. The thing. You don't remember how much is about mice. <laughs> no, yeah. I watched it, like, last year. And I was like, huh, this is, like, all about the mice. And then, like, 5% Cinderella. Yep. So, but no, it's important in the Disney aspect of it and the Disney history, which I'm all about. The reason it's important for me personally is because um, we had the DVD, one of the DVDs when it came out. And 
the bonus features of that DVD geared my understanding about how they used to re-release movies a lot because obviously people couldn't watch them at home without VHS DVD and whatnot. And so that's where I learned, oh, this was in theaters multiple times before it was available home video. And so thanks for that. Another one we had was Gun Crazy, which is another really good film noir that I would highly recommend. I also enjoyed it. The Grandfather of Bonnie and Clyde. I'd just say The yeah. Father. It's not that far off. The Father. 17 years. <laughs> it's the Grandfather of Badlands. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, we had Summerstock, the musical with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. A good summer film. Yes. I <laughs> okay. I watched it the the morning my dog passed away, oh. and it very much helped me have like a little bit of a happy little moment. This so. is like the textbook definition of a fluff film. There's like almost nothing happening, but it's very good. That's what I kind of thought too, because like I gave it a lot of personal nominations, but I was like, I kind of felt the same way. But it's very enjoyable. But the get happy, the get happy scene is like iconic as hell. Yeah. yeah. There are some great songs. And no blackface. Yeah. Hey. Cut me back from 1939. <laughs> I'm, I'm having an, a, a thought that maybe it's Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Uh, we had Night in the City, which uh, was a Criterion release that I really loved. One of my favorites from the year. I really liked it too. I watched I did it. Not, like I did not before. see it. You should check it out at some point. Annie, get your gun. Another big musical from that year. I hadn't seen this one for this podcast, but I remember watching it and liking it a lot, except for the Native American parts. Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't shoot a man with a gun. It's kind of fun. I will say that the history of it with Judy Garland being originally cast oh, and then dropping yeah. out, that's like the best aspect is like the fun fact yeah. because it's like, damn it, I really want to see Judy now in this or Ethel Merman. True. The DVD I watched from my library was introduced by whoever was playing Annie in the Broadway show at that time. Not Reba. No. Bernadette <laughs> Peters? Maybe. You don't know who Bernadette Peters is? I know the name. Which <laughs> but did she have curly hair? No. Okay, well, it had to have been Bernadette Peters because this had been 1999. <laughs> yeah, might have been her. I don't know. But anyway, she <sighs> showed like some of the only footage they had of Judy in the role, and it was kind of interesting. Oh so. yeah, I had that. That was on my DVD too. I don't remember who opened it though. There we go. We also had No Way Out featuring Sidney Poitier as a um, doctor who... Super into this. Yeah. Really good performance him in a really interesting movie, His too. first role. He had, like, one in, like, a uncredited role and then a documentary, and this is, like, his first role. Yeah. Also, also directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Yes. Yeah. Definitely worth checking that one out. Another, uh, like, a very hard-hitting film, too. Like, on the topic of race. Yeah. Uh, we had Cyrano de Bergerac, which I watched simply because Jose Ferrer won 
best actor for this role. I watched it as well. I did it, not. Is a, it is a movie. <laughs> it's there. He's fine. I mean, I don't know. He's good. <laughs> he almost made my nomination. I lost interest after the first scene. The first scene's really good, and then after that, it's just like, what? Uh, we also have Champagne for Caesar. Which I only saw, I'm pretty sure. It's a yeah. really fun film, because I was like, 1950. Let's just watch all the Vincent Price films of 1950, because I love him. And this was the one, only one to, worth talking about. And it's, he's a game show. He like owns a company that sponsors a game show. And Vincent Price makes fun of a man trying to get a job. And the man's like super smart. And so he goes on the game show and tries to win all of the money to bankrupt Vincent Price's company. Ooh. It's so funny. And Vincent Price plays the hammiest role I've ever fucking seen. It's just like a straight comedy. It's good. Everyone should check it out. We also had the Maniver, Maniver story. <laughs> yeah, which I put on just a bitch about. Because it's equal to Mrs. Maniver. Okay. It's, it's Miniver. Miniver. I tripped up. And like that one best picture in 1942? Or 1942? Mm -hmm. Anyway. And this is the sequel. All this time later. It's like a hour and a half epilogue to that film and, and it's not good it's not good i'm i saw sure the name the bottom of my list i saw the name i thought it, the name was just a coincidence i didn't realize it was a sequel nope. greer garson is in it she is, is wasted it's definitely a sequel oh my god and the the biggest fun fact is that their son is not in it he's only mentioned because greer actually married the the boy who played her son in Mrs. Miniver. <laughs> and by the time this movie rolls around, they had a divorce. Oh my God. Beautiful. But literally, it is an epilogue. There's no point to there being a sequel to Mrs. Miniver. Like, we get it. Y'all survived the war. Cool. And then all this stuff also happened. It was like they read the biography on Mrs. Miniver and they were just like, oh, we left all this out. We can make a movie. <laughs> Anyway, next movie. Um, I think we all three maybe watched Orpheus. Yes. Very good as well. Christian loved it. It was very good. It's it's trippy in a good way. Mm -hmm. So very dreamlike. Poetic. Yeah, exactly. Uh Christian, you watched The Men. Yes. Um Marlon Brando's first movie, much like Sidney Poitier's but he plays a paraplegic from the Korean War. They use a lot of actually Korean veterans who are paraplegic. I compared it to Coming Home from 1978 in that sense. But this more focuses, I mean, it does focus on Brando's character, but it really focuses on the other vets. And it's good. It's it's very quick watch. Who directs it? Uh, Fred Zinneman, who did oh, okay. From Here to Eternity. Yeah. Gotcha. So just a very quick quick watch i did nice we also have treasure island from disney which is good i mean um it, again history of disney because he had money that he had to spend in england so he's like why not make a movie in england and so he did and it was treasure island and it was like hella successful for him and this is the first straight um 
live action Disney movie without like animation or anything in it. And the reason why is because he couldn't find British animators that fit his style. Hmm. Okay. It's enjoyable. It's no Muppet Treasure Island, but it's enjoyable. The Muppet Treasure Island is like Citizen Kane level Treasure Island. <laughs> Very nice. Another one. This is interesting case. This is another film that was actually released in 1949. Oddly enough, was also released in the U.S. that year, but was not eligible until the 1950 Academy Awards. It is Adam's Rib, which is um, one of the pairings between Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. They had nine together. And this was really delightful as well. Also with Judy Holiday. Yeah, with Judy Holiday as well. She's great here too. And it was this movie that actually, like I said earlier, Catherine Hepburn was like, you should cast Judy in this movie of yours born yesterday. Yeah. Sure enough. Yeah, definitely but, check out Adam's Rib. It's a really fun domestic I think it was their first comedy together. I mean, if you want to say Woman of the Year is a comedy, you're wrong. But I watched all of their movies together, so I know what I'm saying, people. <laughs> it's very good. Um, I watched Bitter Rice. I don't know if either of you did. I can't remember. Did not. It's an Italian neorealist film. I really love Italian neorealism. This one kind of diverged from that style, um, a little more intense and melodramatic, but I think still worth a watch. Oh, kind of interesting. Uh, we had The Magnificent Yankee. Featuring That's me. Oh, hello, yes. Louis Calhoun. Yes. It's, um, God, who does he play? Oliver Wendell Holmes. And it's like a, supposed to be a biopic, but I mean, it, it feels totally fabricated. It was just really a delightful movie. I was actually surprised I liked it so much that I gave it four stars. Nice. Like Zay would say, it's a fluff film. It's like 90 minutes of just joy. That's it. Directed by John Sturgis. Made a lot of like Steve McQueen's movies, I think. Okay. Um, we also had Mr. 880. Again, I watched all these acting nominations, and this is like these the last two are the ones I wanted to get to. Mr. 880, Edmund Wynn, uh, who played Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. He got his other nomination for this, and it is about him, and he is a uh, he makes fake money. Oh, and, gotcha. Yeah, and Burt Lancaster is the FBI agent who is trying to find Mr. 880, who has eluded him for years and making all these fake bills and. Yeah, so it was, I didn't care for it that much, but Edmund Gwynn was really nice because he's always nice. He's Santa Claus, damn it. Of course. And last but not least, um, we have a film that some, some of you may have noticed that we haven't talked about yet, even though it was technically released in 1950. That's because, once again, it was not eligible until the 1951 Academy Awards, so we will cover it then. Um, but Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. Did I say that correctly? Rashomon. Mm -hmm. Rashomon. I've never seen it. Wait, that's... It's, yeah, it's Rashomon. Um, but that's a very... For seven years. Yeah, very influential, famous yeah. film that we will cover later on. So You've never seen Rashomon? I have. No, 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 Brad. Do you not know this? Did what? you not go to film school? 
<laughs> Honestly. Even I've seen this and they show this in film 100. I've taken one film class and they show me Rashomon. I mean, Akira Kurosawa has made like how many classics though? Not that I've seen any of them, mind you, but. But this is like basic yeah, level right. entry. This is level entry film class. Like for any film class because of come the on, style. Brett. Oh my gosh. Between this and Brett and Bernadette Peters, come on. How many movies exist out there? There, there are a ton, you know? Blame my film teachers, I guess. But give me all happy nails right now. <laughs> We're doing a full episode on Rashwan and <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> We're going on to our personal nominees um, and winners. Like we always do, we'll do the screenplays, supporting actress and actor, um, the lead roles, director, and best picture. So we'll start out with our nominees for best original screenplay. And I don't think I ever go first, so I'm actually going to go first this time. Um, I'll get the quirks out of the way. Number five, I Have Bitter Rice. Number four, Adam's Rib. Number three, No Way Out. Number two, I have The Third Man, which is kind of interesting. Um, I don't know what it would have been considered, but the guy wrote a short, like a book just for the purpose of serving as a pre template for the film. So I'm putting an original. And number one, Sunset Boulevard. I shall go. I, again, did not rank these. But uh, I do have original and adapted this time. I didn't fuck up there. Well, uh, original screenplay, I have The Third Man, Outrage, Orpheus, No Way Out, and the winner, Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. <clears throat> I call your bluff on Orpheus, but okay. Mostly because I don't know how you would... That feels more like an adaptation of a story, but now, eh. I guess Go either way, I think. It's one of those. For my screenplay, I have a film called Los Olvidados from um, Mexico, from uh, Luis Buñuel. What's the English translation? Um, the Damned. Yes. Um, felt a really like Italian neorealism in that sense. Uh, good movie. It's on Amazon Prime with subtitles. Uh, number four, I had Summerstock. Because why not? Number three, Adam's Rib. Number two, No Way Out. And number one, of course, Sunset Boulevard. Very nice. Sweet for Sunset. Okay, best adapted screenplay. Number five, I have Night in the City. Number four is Harvey. Number three, I did put Orpheus here. Number two, In a Lonely Place. And my winner is, of course, All About Eve. I have Harvey, Father of the Bride. Born Yesterday, In a Lonely Place, and the winner, All About Eve. I have uh, number five, Gun Crazy, then Caged, Harvey, Born Yesterday, and my number one is, of course, King Solomon's Mind. Oh, I mean, All About Eve. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was like, <laughs> at some point. Okay. We'll move on to Best Supporting Actor. Um, I know I'm probably going to butcher his name, but Francois Perrier, or Perrier, um, he plays, um, I forget his name, but he's an Orpheus. 
Okay, my number four is Sam Jaff from The Asphalt Jungle. Number three, Eric Von Stroheim from Sunset Boulevard. Number two, George Sanders from All About Eve. My number one is actually Orson Welles from The Third Man. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was coming. I was waiting for it. Eh. Well, he's not going to be much happier about my winner either. Um <laughs> So, uh, again, not ranked, but with a winner. Um, Eric von Stronheim for Sunset Boulevard. George Sanders for All About Eve. Robert Newton for Treasure Island. Um, Orson Welles for The Third Man. And the winner, Vincent Price for Champagne for Caesar. It's a delightful performance, I promise you. It's everything. Uh. <laughs> <Here's your winner. laughs> I as well had Francois Perrier for we're butchering that Perrier. <laughs> and number four, George Sanders for All About Eve. Number three, Richard Widmark for No Way Out. Mm. Um, he is Poitiers foil in that. Number two, I had a man named Adolf Woolbrook in a film called La Ronde from France. He is a narrator in this, and I mean he plays it very well. It's vignettes about love and how it all connects together. He plays that performance so damn well. And my winner is the only winner, Eric von Stroheim. He's my number two if I do have a number two. But you don't, Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> Three different winners. I like it. Okay. And not, not the Oscar winner either. Yeah, that's true. George Sanders won for All About Eve. Okay, Best Supporting Actress. My number five, again, I'm probably going to butcher this, Maria Caceres, Caceres, uh, for Orpheus. Number three, or number four, sorry, I have Celeste Holm for All About Eve. Number three, I have Josephine Hull for Harvey. Number two, Hope Emerson from Caged. My number one is Alita Valley from The Third Man. Okay. I have Linda Darnell for No Way Out. Bali for The Third Man, Josephine Hole for Harvey, Hope Emerson for Caged, and breaking Oscar uh, for whatever they did, I chose Ann Baxter for All About Eve as the winner. can definitely understand that. Um, I also, number five, Maria Caceres for Orpheus. She plays sort of this personification of death. Um, number four, I also had Celeste Holm for All About Eve. Number three, I had Linda Darnell for No Way Out. Number two, I had Hope Emerson for Caged. I promise you all, I did watch The Third Man. <laughs> <laughs> for number one, I have Josephine Hull for Harvey. We're all over the map. I like this. I know. I do too. This is nice. We'll see if it continues. God, I'm so nervous. <laughs> All right, best leading actor. Number five, I have Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Bergerac. I did nominate him. That's right. Okay. Uh, number four, I have John Dahl for Gun Crazy. Number three, I have James Stewart for Harvey. Number two, William Holden for Sunset Boulevard. The Stair Begins. <laughs> My number one is Humphrey Bogart from In a Lonely Place. <laughs> unfortunately um so gene kelly 
for Summerstock. Uh, Joseph Cotton for The Third Man. Sidney Poitier for No Way Out. William Holden for Sunset Boulevard. And the winner is Humphrey Bogart in A Lonely Place. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was close. It was so close. John Dahl, Gun Crazy, number five. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart in A Lonely Place, number four. Oh, man. Oh. Sidney Poitier, No Way Out, number three. <clears throat> James Stewart for Harvey. And William Holden for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> All right. Can we can we actually skip to director and then come back to actress? <laughs> yeah, good idea. Good idea. Okay, best director. My number five is Nicholas Ray for In a Lonely Place. Number four, Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. Number three, I actually have Jules Casson for Night in the City. Number two, Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard. And number one, Carol Reed for The Third Man. Okay, for this one, I have a ranking. Number five, um, Ida Lupino for Outrage. Uh, number four, Nicholas Ray for In a Lonely Place. Number three, Joseph Mankiewicz for All About Eve. Number two, Carol Reed for The Third Man. And number one, Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> number five, Joseph L. Mankiewicz for No Way Out. Ooh. Number four, Carol Reed for The Third Man. Number three, Jean Cocteau for Orpheus. Number two, Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. And for number one, Billy Wilder for Sunset. I do love the picks for Lupino and Cocteau. Because they were great as well. Okay, this is it. <laughs> Category we've all been waiting for. My number five is Judy Holiday for Born Yesterday. Number four, Betty Davis for All About Eve. Number three, Ann Baxter, All About Eve. <laughs> the shock, the shock. Number two, Gloria Graham for In a Lonely Place. And number one, Eleanor Parker for, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Gloria Swanson, Sunset Boulevard is the winner. <laughs> All right. Number five, we have Mala Powers for Outrage. Number four, Judy Holiday for Born Yesterday. Number three, Judy Garland for Summerstock. Two, Betty Davis for All About Eve. And number one, Deborah Kerr for <laughs> King Solomon. <laughs> of course, Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard. Okay, for number five, I have Ann Baxter for All About Eve. Number four, Catherine Hepburn for mm. Adam's Rib. Good pick. Number three, Judy Holiday for Born Yesterday. Number two, Betty Davis for All About Eve. And number one, Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard. It's what she deserves. I'm so pleased that you picked her. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure about Brett. Kept you all in suspense. <laughs> Christian probably oh, thought I was going to go with Gloria Graham because I've just raved about her. When you said the first Gloria, I was like, which one? <laughs> Gosh, I, I was actually, my stomach hurt. The way that, 
<laughs> when it's the two race at the Oscars. God. <laughs> what we live for. Okay. So we'll do what we normally do. Um, we'll do our top 10 now. I actually have 11 films here um, because if I were doing 10, these would be my 10 nominees, but I also want to include a song of love and where it would rank as well. Um, so number 10 slash 11, I have 11. I have summer stock. Number 10. I have Adam's rib. Number nine, Orpheus. Number eight, Harvey. Number seven, gun crazy. Number six, a song of love. Number five, night in the city. Number four, in a lonely place. Number three, sunset boulevard. Number two, the third man. And number one, all about Eve. I think the 1939 episode was easier on Christian because we were all in like agreement that the Wizard of Oz was <laughs> the greatest. But because you keep doing this to Sunset Boulevard, I know it's hard on him. Third place. <sighs> Sorry. Okay. In the tradition of what Brett was doing, I guess I also will say Summer Stock is number 11 slash 10. And then up the line, we have Harvey. And then number nine, Orpheus. Eight, No Way Out. Seven, Outrage. Six, The Third Man. Five, Born Yesterday. Four, In a Lonely Place. Three, A Song of Love. Two, All About Eve. One, Sunset Boulevard. <sighs> I'm loving this. I, I hope you know I'm loving this. Okay. <clears throat> Number 10, Gun Crazy. Never, oh, I, I guess I'm not doing the song of love thing. I rank differently than you guys. <laughs> I don't put short films and whatever. Song of love would be in this, though, if given the chance. So 10, Gun Crazy. 9, Born Yesterday. 8, Father of the Bride. And actually, <laughs> I promise, again, I watched The Third Man. Spoiler alert, The Third Man has lost out on my top 10 to Father of the Bride. With Father of the Bride's record-breaking one Christian nomination. <laughs> problem. That's a real problem. So seven in a lonely place, six Orpheus, five Adam's Rib, four Summerstock, three No Way Out, two All About Eve, and number one near and dear to my heart, the true winner, Sunset Boulevard. Well, we've now covered two your two favorite films ever. And I've never felt more betrayed. <laughs> really, though, um, I really enjoyed watching the movies of this year. Really great year for black and white movies in particular. Um, and that that race between Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve is really one for the ages. Um, so in my personal nomination, Sunset gets 14 and Eve gets 13. So. All right. Fair enough. Sunset Boulevard actually would lead my personal nominations as well, so you do have that. What leads the wins, Brett? Um, not Sunset Boulevard. Actually, it does. It does. Sunset Boulevard and the Third Man tie with five if we consider all the categories. So it's my Mad Max Fury Road or my Gravity or Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Any closing thoughts on 1950 before we wrap up? As always, twas a good year. It was a really good year. I found more films I loved than in 1939. Nice. I felt like I had a lot of rewatches, but like a little bit more appreciation for all of the ones I rewatched. Except for King Solomon's Mines. <laughs> of course. And the Metaverse story. And the Metaverse story. Basically, the message here is that check out all the films we've mentioned except for Miniver Story and King Solomon's Mines. They're just not worth your time unless you're a completionist like us. So, Okay, um, coming up on the podcast, we will have in our next episode a um, an exploration of the year 2012 and the Oscars from that year in which Argo was the big winner. This is going to be pretty big for me because that was the first year that I really started getting into the Oscars. So I'm pretty excited about it. After that, um, we will move into 1985. And so we got some pretty big years coming up and it's pretty exciting. Oh, wow. Okay. I was like, what's our year after 2012? But 1985. Okay. Is Bowling for Soup going to be our special musical guest? Oh my gosh, please. Somebody make that happen. Christian, your face. They sang the song 1985. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be in my head the entire time I'm watching these movies now. Good. Anyway, thanks again for listening to the Gilded Films podcast. Um, follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Thanks to Zay for joining us today. Oh. Thanks, to Christian, my co host as well. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like all of our profiles on Letterboxd as well, as well as the Gilded Films Letterboxd too. So, and all right. Queer things are to come. <laughs> I just want to say because Zay's here a lot. Zay, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Um. In terms of like websites that you write for, particularly that start with a Q. Oh, right. Um, I write a little blog called Queerture of the Night. If you just type that in, I'm sure you'll find It's like WordPress or whatever. Is so. it on your letterbox? No, why isn't it? I should put it on there. Okay, but so we'll, we'll, we'll send out a link on the Twitter. Yeah, okay. sounds good. Yeah, check it out. It's really good. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in once again, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gilded Films Podcast. This episode was co-hosted by Brett Doze, Christian Ramos, and Zay Cooley, and the music was composed by Joshua Arnoldi. You can look out for future episodes of the podcast by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And you can also check out our website, gildedfilms.com. If you could rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. We thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode, and be sure to tune in next time when we discuss the Oscars and the films of 2012. Thanks.